Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have in the beach shack Brenda Matthews. Now her story is unbelievable. At the age of two, her and her six siblings were taken from their Aboriginal parents and placed into a foster system. Subsequently, adopted by a lovely white family, Brenda spent six years knowing nothing of her heritage and the family desperately fighting for her return. Without warning, Brenda's life was thrown into turmoil again when child welfare made the decision to separate her from her white parents, the only parents that she knew, and reunite her with her Aboriginal family who were now strangers. Now let's sit back and have a listen to Brenda's story. I'm sure it'll bring a tear to your eye. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's an honour to have this person because she's got a great story. She's got a book out, also a film, which we'll talk about a bit later, but it's a pleasure, Brenda, to have you in the Beach Shack. How are you? Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, I wanted to, to tell you a story because um, I watched the film uh, last week and it, was, it touched me. It was amazing. And, and a lot of things came out of it that I didn't understand as well. And I think probably a lot of people around Australia don't understand. And I think it's fantastic you're coming out and telling a story. So let's go right back to the beginning. And I think you're about two years old. Yep, two years old when um, I lived with my mother, father and six other siblings. And, um, yeah, we were just travelling out Gilganja way. You know, Dad followed the work around and, yeah, to make ends meet and took his family wherever he went. So, yeah, out there for about a week or so and then all of a sudden Mum hears a knock at the door and, you know, they come to take her children away, they said. Is that a part of the, the stolen generation? Yeah, we were always classified or we were thinking that we were always stolen generation, but um, because of the line drawn in the sand at 69, we're not classified as stolen generations. Right. So what happened from there? So they, they you turned up, but you're only young, you've got your other brothers and sisters, and, and what they just what, put you in a car and off you went? Yep. Took us in, uh, put us all in the car. Mum asked, could they wait till Dad got home? And they said no. Just put us all in the car and took us away. Sent off, sent us off to institutions, you know, and um, an institution down Sydney in the Jura. And then from there, I was placed with a white family. And how was that? When so you wouldn't have known your your background. You went on, and then you're with a white family. And tell us a, a bit about that when you arrived. And you had this new family. Well, I was too young to understand that um, at that time. But you know, being able to go back through story has helped me to understand my story. Yeah, I, I, for a long time I thought they were my family because I didn't remember my um, biological family. You know, so yeah. And then all of a sudden I was 
they said that I had to go back home after five years of living with them and finding a place in their home, you know, and their family. And then they got the news that they had to take me back home and, yeah, it was devastating for them on that side too. And with your wife family, did they know or they just thought they were fostering a young child? Well, their intention was to adopt a child. They wanted somebody to love. They wanted somebody to care for. They knew that there were kids out there who needed a home and loving, and that's all they wanted to do. So, um, you know, they obviously, they were white family, so that's what they filled in for, a white child. But then they got a phone call and said that there's a little Aboriginal girl here if you want her. So, yeah, they thought about it. Um, they didn't have much time to think about it, but they thought about it and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll take her. So... Yeah, I think that journey with my white family started from there then, so yeah. And they had a, a, a daughter already that when you arrived and, and I think they had a, a, another child later on. Tell us yeah, a bit about that. They had, yeah, they had Rebecca and my brother Eugene. Yeah, and then like, you know, we they called me their daughter. They called me their sister, you know, and it was it was a loving relationship between us, you know. And, but it wasn't until my mother brought my other brother, Jesse, home from the hospital that I saw his skin colour was different to mine. So I questioned that. And what, uh, what question was that and what, and what answer did you get? Oh, I just asked her, why is his skin not black? Why, you know, um, why is his skin colour different to my skin colour? So, yeah, it's that. Um, I think I was about six at, at that time and she tells me that they were not my real family and that I had another family who were the same colour as I was. So, yeah, for a six-year-old, that's pretty devastating. The family that you think that are your family is not your real family. And then when the time came and you had to go back to your actual family, how tough was that on the parents you thought, you know, they had to give you back and you'd been there for so long and obviously the love would have been there and it would have been hard on your sister and, and everything as well. Yeah, well, you know, again, I didn't know at the time. I didn't understand it. Um, it I didn't understand the story then. And um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but again, going through a story helped me to understand that, you know, for a long time when they took me back, I felt abandoned and rejected by them, you know, on, on, on my side. And I thought they had chosen Rebecca over me, not knowing the case at the time, you know. And I didn't know how they felt because I, I held that for a long time. I carried that for a long time through my story and the hurt and the pain through that. Being able to go back and ask questions and get answers about that time. Um, yeah, I realised that there was a lot of hurt and pain on their side too, you know. The fear was, from my side, would they want to know me? You know, um, we don't have a very good history here in Australia between black and white, but, um, yeah, I think that fear of, well, do, do they want to know this Indigenous person, you know, this little black girl still? Yeah, so being able to go back and reenact story and and understand that helped me to understand that, they were hurting and they were sad that I was gone and they missed me, you know, and for a long time I wondered that. Did they miss me? Did my little white sister love me and miss me? And, yeah, you know, she did. And that was wonderful to hear that they all missed me as their daughter or sister or niece. So when you went back to your biological family, that must have been really strange too because 
you really wouldn't have known them at all. It'd be like starting all over again. Yeah, well, um, when I went back there, it felt like I was intruding in on their family because I thought they were already a family. I thought they were all close and they lived together for a long time. I didn't realise that they were also taken. You know, being so young at that time, I didn't know that they were all taken and split up and they had a story of their own. Yeah, feeling like an intruder in, in, in your own home, I mean, that was just, that was just crazy. And did they welcome you you back into the family? Obviously, your, your parents would have been happy. And was it a, a stage of they got one child back at a time? And you obviously were the last daughter home. But tell us about that. Yeah, well, they fought and fought till they got us all back home. You know, they, they never stopped fighting for us, you know. And that's what we didn't understand, that we had a, a mother and father back at home fighting for us, or at least the younger ones. You know, but um, even the older ones, they didn't um, understand either why they couldn't go back home, you know. My brother, my eldest brother, actually saw mum and dad one time in Nelson Bay, just right there, and dad yelled out to my brother. And, um, yeah, he he they both really wanted to go up and cuddle each other and, you know, tell each other that they loved them. They couldn't understand why they couldn't do that, so... You know, um, yeah, fitting back in, that's all mum did, mum and dad did. They just were so happy that we all come back home and just they fell into place as much as they could and started a normal life with us. Um, yeah, and that's what we had to do, just try to fit into this life. We never talked about what happened, but, yeah, it was just, it was, yeah, crazy, crazy ride. <laughs> and did it feel like home when you were back there like even though you didn't know them that well but the connection was that there I think it was but because I carried the hurt and the pain I didn't realize that at the time and I didn't understand it so um now that going back through story and um you know have been able to write my story out in book form and but also share it in film form has helped me to understand that that was there all along. The love was there all along. And that was on both sides of my families, you know. But because of the hurt and the pain, I couldn't see that. And the hurt and the pain obviously went for years. When did you realise that, okay, I need to go back now and find out what happened and, and so I could move forward? Well, I've always felt like I've been carrying something heavy, you know, and I realised that that was, that that was my story that I was carrying. And um, I was the only one who could share that story. I was the only one who was going through the emotions that I was going through, you know. We, we all had connection to the story, but we all had a different version of our stories, you know. So, um, yeah, just being able to articulate that and just just understand that, you know, there was a longing that was calling me back, you know, and, and I think that was that love from my little white sister, but also from my, my family, but I, I didn't realise that because my, my eyes were on my little white sister and the love that she held for me, you know. And that was calling me back and I realised, you know, that, again, no one wanted to take responsibility for, you know, us being taken away. So I thought, it, I, thought I would take responsibility on myself and start sharing my story and go back and find the answers that I needed to be able to heal because I was looking for healing in the system that broke us. And I, I couldn't find healing there. So, you know, the 
the healing was within me, but I just had to search for the answers myself. And then when you did go searching, you obviously found your white family. And what was that meeting like? Did you arrange to, to meet up and, and, and discuss things with them? Oh, that was awesome, you know, just being able to, because I didn't remember their faces, but I, I remembered the love that was there and the acceptance. And that's what I connected to, you know, that um, it took me a while because, again, I have been a bit of identity issue with Rebecca not there because, you know, that was the cause for me going back. And um, when she wasn't there, I'm thinking, sitting there thinking one day, what am I doing here? Rebecca's not here. You know, I, 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 in a sense, I lost that sense of identity as a sister. But I had to realise that, hey, there was two brothers there. I was also a, a sister to them, you know, also a cousin to my cousins, also a niece um, and a daughter to my uncles and aunties and mum and dad. So, yeah, that was so beautiful when I went back to see them because I just I still remember that love. You know, I, that was that was the one thing that drew me back there in the first place. And what about their reaction? They must have been, because how many years later was it since you had seen them? 40, about 40 years later since I saw them. And, yeah, like I said, I couldn't, couldn't remember their faces. And, you know, that's the first question I asked when I, I first talked to them. What do yous look like now? Because I was trying to get some sort of memory back. But, um yeah, they were so they were so amazed. They were even crying, and you know, I'm thinking there must be something there. They're crying over me because I didn't cry. I don't know if I was in shock. I don't know if you know I was just numb at the time. But yeah, they they just embraced me and cuddled me, and just the love was just there. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And then did you sit down and when they told you the story? Was that just mind-boggling that what you, the perception you had when you left as a young child to now them telling you the other side of the story? Yeah, that was weird. That just uh, nearly knocked me off the chair, <laughs> you know. Just um, that was the first question that they asked or my white mother asked um, Connie. She said, is your father an alcoholic, still an alcoholic? And I was just shocked because that wasn't the father that I knew, you know. That was not how... That story wasn't reflecting the story that I knew about my father. So, you know, but it was good because it helped to open that door for the truth and conversation about, well, here's the truth. And, you know, you were told you were told wrong about my family. And, you know, and they were so grateful about that because for so long, that's the story that they were told. And that's the story that they held on to, you know, that this little Indigenous girl had a father who was an alcoholic and a mother who couldn't look after her children. So, yeah, it was so beautiful to be able to share that on behalf of my mother and father. And I suppose that would have been the worry for them when they had to give you back. They were thinking that and thinking they're putting you back into an environment that wasn't good for a child, which which wasn't true. Yeah, because they were telling me when they went, they took me back the first time because I had two quick visits, one quick visit, and the next time I had to go back. So the first time they took me back, they walked in, you know, to the doorway there and they saw a picture of Jesus up on the wall. So their thinking was, oh, he's a reformed alcoholic, and that's what they were told. So they were thinking, oh, so um, I wonder if she's safe, I wonder if she's happy now. 
So, um, you know, and their perception of that when they left the house, mum and dad's house that day, that's the story again that they were told and that's what they hung on to. So, yeah, it was so beautiful to be able to share that truth with them. And then what about with your biological family? Did they tell you also what had happened and and so then now you could put both together and, and it all started to make sense? Yeah, well, it wasn't until we were about 15, 16. Mum had mentioned that we were taken away, we were stolen children, you know, and I think that was the right age to tell us because if we, she told us any younger, we still wouldn't have understood that. I mean, we still didn't understand so much, but at least it was opening a doorway for us to remember and I think it was giving us permission to uh, to allow us to remember and to think upon the things that had happened to us when we were younger you know and um yeah I, I just I'm just so grateful that my mother did tell us you know or, or otherwise we'd still be confused you know and walking around in our the hurt and the pain you know but um being able to be to talk about that that's as much as she went into we didn't talk about it too much you know at that time because again it, it was hurting us we were still hurt children you know she was a hurt mother so we we didn't have we didn't have the, the strength, I think, to be able to talk to each other about what had happened to each and every one of us. So did you eventually find out from your other, for your brothers and sisters that where they went to and, and did they ever tell you the story on, on their side of things? Again, um, very hurtful for them. So we never really spoke about it. They did bring some things up, little bits, but not too much into depth because, again, it hurts too much. Sometimes we don't want to be vulnerable and we don't want to feel that hurt and pain or open that door again to that hurt and the pain. That's why we block it off. But, yeah, I think, you know, being able to share my stories helped them to start wanting to open the doorways to their hurt and their pain and go back and find healing through their stories. And do you find, obviously, the pain will probably never go away, but do you find this healing process has really helped you? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I see the impact it's having on, on me and in my life. And um, I just I just want to share that with others, you know, um, because, you know, we all walk these hallways and doorways, you know, and we all carry hurt. We all can carry trauma. Um, and I, I just thought, well, you know, we can all be healed too, you know. But um, I think it takes us to, to heal individually for a collective healing. You know, and I, I think that's a microcosm of the bigger picture that can happen here in Australia. Now, you told your story, but imagine there must be so many children out there in that era from 60s to 70s that have, you know, it's tragic on what, what actually happened. But do you think by you coming out and speaking is helping them as well? I hope so. I mean, we have got a lot of feedback from great responses from people who have um, lost connection to their families, you know. And, uh, you know, I'd like to acknowledge that some some of the mob didn't even make it home, you know. Some are still out there searching. Some are still lost and trying to find the answers. I, I'm hoping that, again, we've all got a story to carry. No matter what colour you are, no matter where you're from, we all can carry story. And Sometimes we, we we can't see the joy and the happiness through our hurt and our pain that we carry, you know. But, yeah, I'm so amazed at the responses that that this story has inspired them to want to go back and find their families or reconnect with their families. And that's black and white people are telling us this, you know, because 
white fellas say, oh, I had a little black sister or a little black brother, you know, mother and father, you know, and then on same on the other side, you know, we're going to find our little white sister or brother. And that's, to me, that's beautiful because, you know, when you take away that little family structure in the house context where there's only mother, father, brother and sister, you know, we all become brothers and sisters no matter what colour we are, you know, and to me that's beautiful because it's, it's, you know, we tend to say, oh, that's our bloodline, you know, that's in our blood. But, you know, when you can share that in a different way and invite someone else into your home, whether they're a different race or not, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's so well said. And do you think moving forward with Australia, because there's always this, you know, people blocking all these getting together, do you think by getting your story out, I think will also help, you know, bring all of Australia together. As you said, we're all really, we're all one. Yeah, because I've I've come to realise that reconciliation had to start within me. You have to reconcile with your own hurt and pain before you try to reconcile with anybody else. Because if you you haven't reconciled with yourself, you're still going to be carrying that hurt and pain. And we can reflect that on others. You know, I, I always say, you know, do you want to be a herder or do you want to be a healer? You know, and I, again, it's that individual healing. You know, you have to reconcile with your hurt and pain. And that, that way you're, you're not lo- no longer carrying that. You're carrying the joy and the happiness of that story within you, you know, that happy story within you, that quiet, in that quiet place. And you get to share that with others, you know. It's not only for me, it's not only for Indigenous people, it's for all, all nations, all colours, you know, and, and that, again, is beautiful in itself. Well, that can work for everybody, as you said. Like, we're all in the same boat. We all have our, our tough times in life, no matter what it is. But you're right, we need to reconcile with yourself and then that's the only way to move forward yeah and I I think if we start doing that you know we tend to carry a lot of identities you know and sometimes we get lost in them identities you know but if we can keep the roles of brothers and sisters you know that that'll help us to navigate through these hallways and doorways you know that we all walk through you know and there's a saying that you know the truth hurts but the truth will also set you free and that's, that's the truth about yourself. And that's, that's what's amazing about this, the journey of your own story. You get to carry that. But what story are you telling? Are you telling the story of the hurt and the pain of your past story? Or are you going to carry the healing story that is in you and that, that you can bring that to, to the surface, you know, in your life and through your story? And, um, you know, I think that reconciliation and to reconcile with yourself is, is the start, you know, and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a politician, a banker, a lawyer, whatever, a doctor, or even a surf lifesaver <laughs> or an yeah. indige- Indigenous person, you know, walking the walking country, you know, we can all reconcile with ourselves and our hurt and our pain to carry this healing story. Because I think a lot of people just hear what they hear and it can obviously be wrong, as you said, and you get your own opinion. And going back to when you were young, you had your own opinion because you didn't know, you're only getting, knowing what you were told. And mm. I think that's the problem with a lot of areas that we're going with is, is a lot of people are only told what they, uh, and they don't know the full story. 
Yeah, and, um, you know, for so long our story's been told by somebody else for a long, long time, you know, and we've we've mourned for so long, you know, as Indigenous people of this land. And um, I, I think it's time that the mourning's over, you know. I think that the it's a new season for joy and happiness and, you know, we can share that with with others, you know. We can share the, the healing story of, 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 of our home, of our country, you know, with others. You know, White Australia has joined our circle in this country now. And, you know, I think it's time that we need to ask ourselves, who am I in this space and where am I going, you know, to be able to find a connection to the story through their own story, you know, and to be able to, to, to say, well, we can't do anything about the past, but we can acknowledge it and we can try to move forward. We can reconcile with our with ourselves and try to contribute to this relationship now that we all have in this country. And, you know, for that to be able to, to move for all of us forward and what a better place that would be for all of us, you know, carrying that healing story and sharing it and reflecting that on each other. You know, even for other people who are coming over from different countries and, and settling and calling this home now, you know, hopefully they can find a place and, and you know, here and to call this place home now. It's great to hear the way you, you say it. It's, it's amazing and your story is, is unbelievable. Now let's go on to the film and, and then we'll also touch on the, the book as well. So what inspired you to do the film? I think, again, in our culture, we've just shared stories. That's all. That's that's what our mob did, shared stories and passed them down through the generations. So having someone to come up and say, you know, a, a white fella come up and say, I want you to share your story, you know, just being able to give us a hand up and not a hand out, you know, and say, I want to support you in sh- helping you share your story. You know, to me, that was um, amazing, you know, starting from my husband wanting me to share my story on camp. But also, you know, him having connected connections to the Bundjalung people here in, in Fingal and, um, you know, them connecting us to other people and that they knew in that industry. Yeah, it was just so beautiful in itself that these people wanted to help me share my story. So that gave me the courage to actually say, yeah, OK, then I'll, I'll do it. I mean... That's my cultural responsibility is to share story, you know, and to have my co-director, Nathaniel Schmidt, also um, ask me, do you want to co-direct with me? You know, that was beautiful to ha- to ha- have him sit there and say, hey, you're the knowledge holder for your story, but I'm the knowledge holder for the film sense and directing. How about we do this together? Yeah, it was just so awesome. The actors that they got involved, were you, were you proud of them, the way they portrayed your story? Oh, that was beautiful to watch. That was so beautiful, you know. And I didn't want to let any of the cast go, but, I, you know, you can only pick a few. So, you know, because they were all so awesome. And, um, yeah, I had to be true to all the characters that I chose for, um, well, that we chose for the, the recreation scenes. And, um, yeah, it was just, I just thought of mum, dad, all the the characteristics of them and their dad's hairline and everything. And, yeah, um, yeah, that was so Jeremy Johncock, how, um, yeah, how awesome. He just looked like spitting image of younger dad. So I was, like, blown away. But, yeah, no, they, was, they were awesome. The kids were just wonderful to work with and, yeah, awesome. 
Well, it's a great film, and it's on Netflix at the moment, so you can give that a, a bit of a plug for people who uh, I recommend it. I watched it. It's, uh, it's an amazing story. Yeah, no, um, yeah, it's on Netflix, and, yeah, so on New Zealand and Australia. So, yeah, it's just I'm, I'm so happy that people get to see that and enjoy that now, you know. But also we still want people to go to the cinemas and watch it or watch it in group settings, you know, workplaces. Um, there's nothing like going with a mob to, you know, see the film and that. So, yeah, it's beautiful. And it's called The Last Daughter? Called The Last Daughter, yep, same as the book. So now onto the book. Uh, did that come after the film or before the film? Because it's obviously the, uh, the same story, but why the book as well? Well, I think that was in the works the same time or just before. So um, the, the film was sort of based on the book. Yeah, it was just a, the journey of going through story at the same time. So I was able to write everything down at the same time and, yeah, put it down in book form. But, um, yeah, it was just it's an amazing journey because, like I said, I, I learnt so much about myself. Uh, you know, we're so good at interrogating others. Um, we never interrogate ourselves. So being able to go back through story was helping me to interrogate myself and my own actions. And I learned so much about myself, how much hurt and pain and resentment and jealousy and all that I was carrying, you know, for my white father because I thought they had abandoned me, you know. But, yeah, text publishing have been amazing at, at, at bringing that to life through the book form. And, yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. Well, the book's out now, so it's an amazing effort and... Uh... You can get it us. Where can you get the book? Anywhere in uh, bookstores? Yeah, all bookstores in Australia, and um, I think it, you can get it in New Zealand too. Now, um, we have had some requests um, overseas, and you know, but I, again, I think you can still get that online overseas. You know, the US and that. We went to a book signing, and ladies. Uh, got me to sign the book and she said oh I'm taking this over to San Francisco to my daughter so I was like oh wow that's so cool so yeah um, yeah I think you could still get it online and that oh well, that's good because uh, we've got a, a big international following on this podcast so you might start getting a few more orders from overseas Oh, I hope so. Um, we do have an agent overseas, you know, Ulf Gunnar. So, yeah, he's hoping that it will get going overseas and that it will spread out over there. So hopefully if anyone's listening and can help out with that, um, I mean, that'd be amazing, you know. The book has so much more content and so much backstory, you know, to both my black and white families, but also the more the hurt and the pain, you know, but and the culture. But... Um, you know, being able to share that in, in, in book form, yeah, is so much more content, what we can't fit into the 90-minute narrative. So, yeah, it's so beautifully done. Yeah, it's amazing. And where to from here? Do you think you might help other people with their stories and, and, and do other films for them? You might end up a, a producer in, in film. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, yeah, I've got a few things there in the works and um, hopefully get started on that soon, you know, give this a bit more time to run. I certainly want to share more people's stories and, you know, just truth-telling, you know, because I think that's some of the, that's one of the fears that we have, most fears that we don't like to open the doorways of the, 
the fear that is in us so and share the truth and sometimes there's no space for sharing the truth or telling the truth because you know sometimes we all get so offended and so offensive that there's no safe space to be able to share truth so um yeah i think it's time that we started guarding our own hearts from the hurt and the pain or, or offense you know that people that we tend to carry that people are projecting on us but you know, it's. I think it's our responsibility, no one else's responsibility of our actions and behaviour. So for us to start guarding our hearts from the hurt and the pain or the, the you know, the offence that might come our way, that might build, start building up to all that resentment and anger and frustration, you know, that's a good place for us to start within ourselves. And that's what I find. Today's society, it's hard to know what to say. Mm. You know, even myself, I... Do I say that or don't say that? I don't want to say it and offend someone. You don't know whether you're going to offend someone or not offend someone. It's it's very difficult. Yeah, it is very difficult. Um, But I think, again, it's a motive of the heart. It's a heart action. It's a heart condition, you know where your heart is you know that's that's how you'll speak if you're a hurt person and that's that's where it's going to come from the heart and you're going to you're going to keep hurting people and reflecting that on others but if you start um you know conditioning your heart to start being mindful of what you say to other people or you know the hurt and the pain that you're carrying you know, you can start thinking, oh, why Why am I saying that? Why am I talking like this? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's not that person, you know. So I think, yeah, interrogating ourselves and our own stories and behaviours and actions, best place to start, I think. It definitely is. It is very hard, I suppose, for people to do that. They've got to, I suppose, see within themselves and and to do that because it's not an easy thing to do is it no it's not easy but i think when you start practicing that and you start walking that every day i think it has to become a practice every day for that to start happening because it is it is so easy to get offended it is so easy to go back at people and you know we we that's we tend to keep hurting each other if we're not hurting each other we're hurting ourselves you know yeah i think we we need to start and i think that's where wellness and mindfulness begins you know within ourselves we need to go to that quiet place within ourselves and start asking ourselves questions you know because we all carry knowledge but again what knowledge are we carrying what knowledge are we sharing with others you know yeah so good place to start and you do go do talks that I've noticed that you've done and and a lot of younger people are in the audience and and how do you find their response to when you do the talks uh yeah talks um yeah they've they've been amazing you know being able to share that in different places is so wonderful and the feedback from the young fellas is amazing you know because again like on indigenous sides, you know, they have connection to stolen generation or the the, the the welfare act or, you know, being in the the welfare system, you know, and they can relate to that. But also on the white side, you know, just the, the, the heartfelt story, you know, of, of trying to connect to indigenous Australians, you know. Yeah, it's just so so beautiful because a lot of people want to connect, but again, they don't know how because, again, some are frightened of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And 
you know, I think it, on all sides we need to start being mindful of each other and, yeah, we can't change the past and, you know, what we don't want to keep people feeling guilty for what has happened, you know, but that's why it's a good thing to share these stories, our own stories out of love and forgiveness, you know, that that's that everyday practice thing that, you know, you and we have to acknowledge that we all hold a story. We all carry a story. We're also carrying hurt and pain, but who are we going to turn to if we can't turn to each other and, and share that knowledge with each other, you know? 100%. Now, Brenda, it's, it's great having you in the beach shack, having a chat about your story, and I think this is going to really get out there, help a lot of people, and it's a pleasure having you in here, and, and uh, I'm, I'm quite honoured. So you'll have to come down to Bondi one day when I'm there and I'll meet you in person and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. the beautiful Bondi Beach. Yeah, no, it's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. But, um, yeah, like I said, I was there the other day when I was at Bondi Pavilion yeah. and went down there to see if I could see anyone. But, yeah, I couldn't see anyone. But, um, yeah, it was it's awesome being here, you know. And if people want to know more about what to do next, you know, um, Hopefully they can come on that walk with Arnie Brennan Matthews, you know, on socials, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok and that. But, um, yeah, that we can walk this walk together because, you know, we can't do it alone. We need each other. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's the important thing, that we stick together and that we walk together on this healing journey together as one. And you can find you on all those uh, social media at Auntie Brenda Matthews and uh, you're on all those Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, so people will jump on board for sure. Yeah. Now, Brenda, at the end of the uh, interview, I do a segment called Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to throw a, a couple of questions at you and uh, and uh, answer them however you want. There's yeah. no wrong or right answer to you. <laughs> okay. uh, what are the best and worst purchases you have ever made? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the best purchase was a good dirty chai, I think. <laughs> A coffee, yeah. <laughs> Especially when you need one. <laughs> uh, cats or dogs and why? I don't mind cats or dogs when they're babies, <laughs> little, but when they get a bit um, bigger, they're just a bit scary, yeah. <laughs> what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of sharing my story and doing it out of love and forgiveness, but also being able to pass that out down to the next generations, next two generations. Yeah, very proud. What's the most interesting thing you've heard or seen this week? Being on this podcast with you. <laughs> good answer, very good answer. <laughs> uh, the last uh, question, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? I think every song that I know and I know the lyrics to, when that comes on, just love, love to sing and, you know, especially when I'm cleaning up or, you know, just travelling, listening to music. Yeah, I love it. Soothing, I think, for the soul. And music is in your culture, isn't it? There's a lot of music you would yeah, have grown up with. Yeah, song and dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, yeah, that's what Dad and them used to do, you know, take us to here and there, travelling around, following the um, rallies. That's it. Thanks, Mark. Uh, rallies, yeah, singing songs, and everyone used to love us getting up as a family and singing Come Home, Come Home at Supper Time. Yeah. So, yeah, that's at the end of the film, um, but also in the film. But, um, yeah, just 
you know, I had to put a bit of lingo in the film at the end. So, yeah, that was so beautiful to be able to reminisce on that and listen to that song over and over again in all the different forms it's in now too. It's just so beautiful. Well, Brendan, it's been great listening to your story and having a chat and, uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon uh, when you're down at Bondi. Uh, yes. Keep the keep the journey going and uh, and keep helping many many people. Yes, I will. And thank you for uh, again for having me. You know, it's been awesome having being on here. And yeah, my son loves your show. So shout out to Travis. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Travis. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Azza Buck and he is in to chat. How are you, mate? G'day, Hop. Yeah, I'm good, mate. Thanks for having me back. Now, mate, you've worked many years as a lifeguard, but then you've also made the progression to the fire brigade. So tell us how much experience of being a lifeguard helped to get into the fire brigade. Yeah, mate, I think it did help a lot. I don't know, it seems like, it seems so hard for a lot of guys getting into the fire brigade now, but back then I think being a lifeguard really, really helped a lot more. It seemed to be the you know trade background or lifeguard background really um, got a foot in the door. And, you know, I, I'd, I think I'd always had a, the plan to sort of give the fireys a good crack. I returned home from living in Europe for a few years and um, traveling and working and came back and was like, it's time to do it. And, there was no recruitment drive going. So I got on the beach and, and, you know, I thought that that's another good thing to have in the, in my CV before, before trying the fire brigade. And um, I think I was two years on the beach before, before I got into the fire brigade. So it taught me, it taught me a lot of similar stuff, you know, all the communication, the radio comms, the just uh, being comfortable talking on the radio and stuff like that, especially that's a big part the fire brigade and it, it, it sort of stumps a lot of people to start with, you know, but um, I never had those problems because I'd, I'd already been talking to you guys on the radio for two years. So, and the, you know, all, everything about it's the same, the same sort of teamwork, just the, the way that the calls go down, emergencies, the way everyone works together, the, the other agencies you deal with, it's really, really similar. And also I suppose the dealing with the traumatic situations, very similar to the, you know, the traumatic situations we deal with, whether it's a body retrieval or yeah. resuscitation, you're obviously going into, you know, serious car accidents, fires where, you know, people are badly burnt or could even be dead. Yeah, for sure. You, de- you definitely do see some some horrendous stuff. But you, you're right. Um, I think you, you don't see it as regularly with the fire brigade where you know how busy we are with our beaches. We're constantly, every shift you're doing, something you know whether it's a spinal or a or a, a you know a bad laceration or you know god forbid a, a recess or something but we get a lot more exposure to those things and i think after two years of being on the beach and seeing these things regularly i was already sort of used to that's my job and i can only do what i can do with my skills i i yeah i don't know with the fire brigade a lot of people I think get um get a bit overawed by some of the stuff they see because it's a bit rarer. And when they when when it does happen, it's horrendous. You know, like you see a burnt, a burnt body in a fire. It's it's yeah, it's not the nicest thing. The beach, the beach definitely, I think, strengthened my you know mind and resolve for that sort of stuff and got me used to it. 
And the other thing I was going to ask, do you think it's good? I mean, you obviously had a, a trade as well when you're working as a lifeguard. You, some of the younger guys that come straight on as a lifeguard but haven't had any other experiences, do you think mm. you need to have another experience with a job? Look, I don't think you have to but it, I, for certain individuals, but I think it definitely helps. Like our job is so unique. It's it's so enjoyable and, you know, you do hear guys win sometimes about they're sick of this and sick of that and, you know, I've been there and done that as well. But um, if, if you go and dig holes with a plumber for a, for a day, you pretty quickly realise that, you know, working on the beach is pretty much the plum job. Mate, that would have been the days when you were living with Bobby Orwood, mate, the whinging part, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think that's why we got on. I think that's why we got on so well. Lived together for so long. <laughs> Two peas in a pod. <laughs> mate, I'll have to get him to listen to this one because I, I need to get him in the beach shack. I don't know if I'll ever shut him up, though. Yeah, that'd be interesting. You won't get a word in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as a thanks, mate. It's uh, great hearing the stories and. Uh, and you're doing so well in you know the fireys, and you're still working with us as a lifeguard as well. So catch you soon. Thanks, mate. Twenty years, bring it on. See yeah. you, mate. <laughs> See you, mate. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Peter, and he is from Ramwick in Sydney. He says, Hoppo, uh, last week I was down at uh, Bondi and I saw a dinosaur running around. What was that about? It looked like a movie. Well, Peter, it was, uh, wasn't a movie, but it was a part of Jurassic World, the exhibition. Now, that's going to be out in September, out at Homebush in Sydney. Uh, it'll run for a fair few months. Uh, worth going out and having a look at. It was uh, quite fun watching a dinosaur run around uh, Bondi and... Us as lifeguards were involved. We got them to, uh, but you know, as if we were gathering the uh, dinosaur and putting it back in the pen. So it was uh, quite a entertaining day. Out of the ordinary for us lifeguards. Well, Peter, thanks for your letter and I'll catch you all again next week. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.